There's never been a better time to be alive. And whatever the metrics you choose, the world is on its all-time high. So why living seems sometimes so hard? Here I ask people in the forefront of building the future their reasons to be optimistic and the challenges they see ahead. I'm Mauro Rebelo, biotech scientist and entrepreneur, and this is the All-Time High Podcast. Dina Shirif is executive director at Legaton Center for Development and Entrepreneurship at MIT. Having grown up in the United States and in Egypt, she wants to educate innovators differently. So they start thinking about the inclusive commercialization of their products from the beginning of the development. In this episode, we talk about the dilemmas of individuals and the collective interests, how VCs are stuck in a money-in, money-out paradigm, and the need to incentivize businesses that are inclusive. I really enjoyed talking to Dina, and I hope you will enjoy the conversation too. Hi, Dina. So thank you so much for doing this. Let me start asking you where you were born, where you are right now, and maybe some story that connects those two places. Yeah, it's an interesting question. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to do this with you. Um, I was born outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, uh, although my parents are Egyptian. They had immigrated to the United States um, in the early 70s, and I was born uh, in a small town right outside of Philadelphia where I grew up, uh, and then I moved back to Egypt when I was 14, and I've I spent most of my teenage years, my college years, my adult life, uh, building my career and living in the Middle East and Africa, and then I finally came full circle again and relocated back to the U.S., um, in 2019 when I took a job at MIT. So I'm currently in Boston. Uh, and I, I say it's an interesting question because uh, where I, I was born, which is the United States, um, to an extent uh, has led to a lifelong crisis of identity between am I American or am I Egyptian, Arab, Muslim, African? And it took me so many years to realize that I'm all of that, which I think is what led me back to being okay with relocating and finding myself right back where I started here back in the United States. Only here, I'm very, at this stage in my life, extremely comfortable with the, the very complex nature of my identity. Well, that's, uh, that's so interesting. One of the books that I uh, like the most is the unbearable lightness of the being. And um, I read this book several times, and it's funny because every time I had a different read. And and first time I read the book and I saw these four characters that are very strong characters. And I felt like you they represent, people should fit in one of these characters, right? And it was like just on the third or read, second or the third read that I understood that we are, we have 
those four characters inside us, right? And we they, and they take turns. It's much more that they take turns than we are one or the other or even an average. No, no, different parts of turns. us come out at different times. Yes. So it's very interesting that you say that you. Uh, came to terms with the fact that you are all of all of this and with you know this complex personality how do you see it and and having lived in i wouldn't say extremes but in these two different worlds how do you see the world uh, today do you think the world today is better or is it worse than it was before and how and is it getting better or is it getting worse? Um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. I think a hard question, right? Um, because I think if you think about it, uh, in many ways, the world is in a better place, um, and technology has had massive impact in allowing us to make the world a better place. But in many ways, the world is a worse off place, right? If anything, the pandemic and the past year and a half has revealed to us um, just how dysfunctional some of our systems are and also how inequitable. So even though we advance technologically and there are all these amazing innovations and uh, technology and this smartphone has enabled us to do so many things and to um, be connected in so many new and interesting ways. We have yet to really use technology to transform our systems in ways that work for everybody. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I joined uh I took this position at MIT, which is executive director of the Legatum Center for Development and Entrepreneurship based at Sloan, is because our the center was really created to think about how entrepreneurship and innovation can be a pathway to prosperity, but prosperity that doesn't leave anybody behind. And I think um, it, 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 the question is, I think in some ways we're doing better and in some ways we're doing worse. And I think for us to be doing better on the whole, we need to remember that we we are all connected. And if something works for one but doesn't work for another, it really doesn't work. Um, and I think that, uh, I think we're, what has also been revealed, when you think about the pandemic, you realize that over time in this kind of fast-paced world that we all live in and this incredible need to achieve and build things and do things, you kind of also forgot that as humans, we're all connected and community and the collective is extremely important. And um, when I think about the, the pandemic and those who have suffered as a result, you realize that it's also not just a factor of the dysfunctionality of our systems and how they're working, but it's also a factor of the fact that as 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 a population and as people, we don't function as a collective anymore. We kind of think about ourselves. We've become very individualistic. And we need to go back to this place of thinking about each other and how our behavior influences each other so that we can... Uh, 
we can get to a better place that works for all of us and not just a few of us. Let's, I, uh, how can I say this? Is this a feeling or do, which, which metrics you use um, to say this? I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but um, I, let, let's take one thing that very positive that I think that happened with the pandemic. We developed the vaccine in record time. We did. So, but we couldn't and, get the vaccine to those people who needed it in record time. Yes. Okay. So this is this, why I say it's good. I think in terms of technology and science and innovation, we're, I think it's oftentimes mind-blowing just how, um, how much of an opportunity we have, right? But when you think of the vaccine, yeah, in record time, we had vaccines and they were ready to go to market in, in what, almost un, in a year, in a little under a year. And it, it was a fabulous thing. But if you think about the ability of the global population to access that vaccine, no, it was not equitable. And we didn't have, um, we didn't really think of a way to distribute the vaccine globally in a way that was equitable and in a way that would allow us all as a global community to continue to thrive. And I think what happened is that those who could afford countries that could afford the vaccine were able to do that. And uh, there are a lot of countries in the world who just couldn't. And I think um, what has happened is that there's just an unequal distribution of the vaccine. And that doesn't take away from the fact that the innovation is fascinating. I just think we haven't been able to crack the, or we haven't been able to solve for how we make innovation inclusive. And, and I think that is what would make, that would that is what would say for me, we're in an amazing space because I think innovation for the sake of innovation doesn't work unless we're able to commercialize it in a way that is inclusive and equitable. Um, so if I can sit in Boston and get the vaccine, but somebody I love in Cairo can't, that doesn't make me happy. Yes, I understand what you're saying. So. If you think of the challenges ahead, this would be the most important challenge or like, or do you see other, if, if I can, let's see if I understood. So you, you just said a very interesting, a very important sentence, like innovation cannot be for the sake of innovation. Innovation has also to be inclusive. So would you say that this is an important challenge ahead? How to, we know how to innovate, we are even good at it, and it has reduced the human suffering, but it's still not inclusive, or it's not taught to be inclusive. Yeah. Or is it part of the innovation process where adoption is, uh, uh, um, it's a curve, and it, it's not a linear curve, and where also, and, and, and how, and if I can go one step further, um, what is the role of funding on 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 this inclusive inclusiveness? Well, so first, I I, take, I ask it a lot of questions. So let like, me take first the yeah, challenge. You know, like it. if the challenge of inclusion yeah. is is the largest one, and then how can we try to tackle it? Well, let me take a step backwards. Um, 
in innovation, when you think about what is innovation, right? We innovate to solve a problem, right? When we innovate, we're creating a new solution. And that solution is to solve a problem that needs to be fixed, right? So I think, I don't know if solving for inclusion is our biggest problem or if solving for how we educate those who innovate is the bigger problem. And also how we incentivize, how we think about the role of innovation. So, and I think about this here when, you know, at MIT, you know, you have, or, or if we take, go back to the vaccine, right? The, 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 t- the vaccine was created, that's the science part, right? And the innovation part was that this vaccine was created. Now, in order for that, you know, in order for that innovation, so say for the Moderna vaccine, to actually make the world a better place, we had to commercialize it, right? So it needed to go to market. And the commercialization is where innovation meets the business world and how you take an innovation and you commercialize it. Something in that puzzle is missing. So how do we take an innovation, commercialize it, go to market, and really think when we commercialize something and take it to market, how are we ensuring that it's truly getting to everyone it needs to get to in a way that will really make the world a better place and that will solve the problem for everyone? So in a way, I would say, maybe solving for inclusion is a critical problem across the board and across all systems. Because if you think about the breakdown in any system, whether it be healthcare, whether it be education, it's oftentimes who is left out, who doesn't have access, who is it biased against. it's, It's where innovation starts, it's where innovation starts lacking, right? So I think when we educate students or or those who are innovating and when the innovation meets the business side, how we can create business models that lead to prosperity for everyone, if that is the mindset, then you commercialize in a different way. You start thinking in a different way. And I think, and I, and I, I see you, like writing return on investment, when you think about it, if you're developing, if you're commercializing a product and if you're trying to make your solution accessible to everyone, only you you have to make it slightly more affordable in order to make it accessible to everyone. When you think about it, and we talk about this all the time when we think about the base of the pyramid, which is the majority of the global population who we make an assumption can't pay we think that the poor can't pay for basic products and services, but it's a myth because what happens is the poor pay and they often pay a premium because accessibility is a problem. So if we're thinking about making sure that we provide um, inclusive solutions and we may have to, our price point may need to change in the aggregate, I would say our return on investment would be much higher because you're including everyone. 
I put this question because I read in the beginning of the pandemic a um, very interesting article from MIT Tech Review, which was the title was uh, "Venture Capital is not funding the problems like the solutions to the to the problems that it's not funding the solutions that we need." That's so correct. The 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 art the point of the article is look, yes, VC is a, a it's a risk investment. But the metrics are all return on the investment. Okay, so they they are on the problems that have the potential to return on the investment. So there is, and and like you said, the incentives. So the incentives are not uh, um, um, well distributed or well positioned because. How how are we going to fix this? Who is going to fund the solutions of the problems that uh, uh, that we have? So well, let, let, let me put it in a, in another way, right? So, at the Legatum Center, we've been thinking a lot about risk capital and about venture capital. You know, we don't talk a lot. We don't talk enough. We don't have enough conversations about how, how capital is deployed. And I think the role of investors uh, or the role that investors can play in systems transformation is significant, but we don't talk to them about it, right? Uh, they are stuck, investors are stuck in this, this kind of paradigm of money in, money out. Money in, how can we multiply that to get the highest return possible? And the same would go for the LPs who fund the, who put money in these funds, right? Um, oh, when the pandemic first started, and you know, you saw companies really struggling to survive, innovation-driven companies struggling to survive, and struggling to survive also because they were burning cash, right? The the kind of overall, I think the norm for a lot of startups in the innovation space was to raise an enormous amount of capital, burn through cash, and it was okay because more cash would come. Um, and I think a lot of people during the pandemic took a step back and were thinking, is this really the right way to go about um, funding innovation? And if, if we think about it, uh, a lot of venture capitalists we were talking to were basically coming back and saying, well, we've been deploying capital into innovation, but yet here we are in the midst of a pandemic and our systems are failing. So were we investing the right way to begin with? I think what has been happening is that we see venture capital, risk capital, invest in businesses that bring the highest financial return back. But the reality is if we invest in businesses that are solving real problems at a systemic level, it's almost impossible that it wouldn't have a high return because it's solving a real problem for people who need it to be solved. I think the issue is we don't have good conversations with, with those who deploy capital about systems change and about how they have a significant role to play in transforming systems by building a portfolio of companies that will lead to that system transformation. 
And if you think about how you build a portfolio of companies, and I say this, and I'm a venture capitalist, I have my own fund, you know, I have a venture capital fund that invests in fintech. And I would say the same thing, we need to build a portfolio that is going to impact the overall system of financial inclusion. And if every business we invest in is somehow building upon the other, for sure, we're going to get high returns because we'll be solving at a systemic level, which means that ideally it would work for everyone, which should bring us higher returns. But we don't see that as a way. It's not a paradigm. It's not a mindset. That doesn't mean we can't get to that mindset. We're just not having those significant conversations. Do you think the impact funds, you know, this category, uh, what you are describing somehow is what is coming to my mind as the impact funds. But when I talk to the impact funds, I see uh, difficulty to define what is impact, difficulty to define, and then we are coming back again and again to what is the cash flow, what is the valuation, what is the... And, and it's so difficult. At least I can tell you from the perspective of... Uh, uh, um, someone in the developing country with the kind of, of funds that we have here, it's a very difficult conversation and you don't see so many deals being done, so many capital flowing to these impact projects. And, mm -hmm. and I, so I, I, don't, I don't really like to use the word impact just because it's so vague and broad and it, it could be anything to anybody. But when I think about it, I think about is there a problem that is being solved? Is the problem relevant? And is it being solved in a way that uh, can serve those who really need it? And then I think about the system. Is this venture truly going to have, uh, going to transform a particular system or solve a gap in the system or completely disrupt the system? And I think I think moving from this kind of word of impact to a systems level thinking approach um, allows for a lot more creativity in how we think about our, our investments because you can break down a system and you can scientifically, you can, and you're a scientist and you know it, you can think, you can take a systems level approach, you can break it down, you can understand how the system functions and you can think about is this new innovation how it's going to impact the system or not. And I think when you put it under that lens, we can start seeing real change and we can measure that change. I think what's happened is this impact investment space has become a space where there's like a massive spectrum, which means it's become everything and nothing. And uh, that's not really useful to anybody. Uh, what we really need to do is to get really serious about what are the problems within our systems and the varying systems of education, of healthcare, of transportation, of energy, all of these varying different systems that impact everyone's life on a day-to-day -day basis. Where are these systems breaking down and what are the problems that we need to solve for? And from there, start thinking about how those innovations can truly transform the system in a way that works for everyone. But the way that you're saying, it seems to me like um, we need people to um, kind of change this mindset. And 
I particularly don't like a lot the idea that um, kind of people have to, you know, like the center, ah, the people have to understand that they have to do this because it's the common good. And I prefer what you said before about the incentives. So if there is, so maybe there's not enough incentive to solve the system level problems. Right, and I was wondering what. Well, what that's because it be goes back to the original. It goes back to the original point I made, right? Which is the the we need to move from thinking about what serves me as an individual to what serves the collective, including me as an individual. And I think that the somehow we've been living in a world that has been about what is the maximum return I can get for myself? Or what is the maximum return I can get for my share shareholders? As opposed to what is the maximum return I can get for all of my stakeholders? And uh, that requires a shift in mindset. And it also requires that um, policymakers and regulators incentivize business that, that is inclusive, right? That we find ways to somehow say we need to, solutions that will be equitable, that will be accessible. Because I think the worst thing that we've seen with the rollout of, of the vaccine is the inequity of it, the inequity of the distribution. But I think also, even during the pandemic, the worst thing that we have seen is the inequity, be, the inequity of who had access to good healthcare when they got sick. Yes. And, and that was a very, that was a tragedy, right? Because this was a, it wasn't like I'm a multi-billionaire and so that will protect me against getting COVID versus somebody who is uh, low income. Everyone was at risk of getting COVID, but it shouldn't have been that the person who is uh, a blue collar worker or um, uh, who came from an, rural underprivileged area could not get access to adequate health care, but somebody who had wealth could. Okay, but let me put an idea to see your opinion on it. Because I, um, being a biology scientist, I tend to look at nature and, and biology, let's say, the at, even at a very basic level, what uh, biological algorithms okay uh, and 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 i try to see that whenever we try to go against those algorithms that are millions of years of evolution it's very hard so if you try to tell your brain not to uh, that has all these biological or chemical algorithms for short term reward you know like dopamine Builds up, everything's very fast. We were, our brains were made to uh, um, worry about what we are going to eat next. Instant gratification. Next. Yes. But but this is, you know, like it's hardwired. We cannot change this. There's, it hasn't been enough time to change the way our brain works. So I, uh, um, so that's why I think it's difficult for just for education, for example to change this biological instinct. 
it will be very hard for us to always you know, think on the long term. And so you need to be hardly incentivized to think long term, to act long term, and not to be selfish. That it, I think it's the only way of uh, um, of living, co-living with this brain of, of ours that is short term. And so going back to the incentive and, and the selfishness, and I would take again the example of the vaccine. I think what is beautiful in a vaccine is that when you take the vaccine, you are only should be, and, and I think people who, does, who doesn't think like this are, are wrong, you are only acting in your own self-best interest. You take the vaccine because you don't want to die. The, the vaccine is going to prevent, in the case of, in, in the case of I know, measles or, or polio, it prevents you uh, um, tuberculosis. It prevents you from getting this disease, from dying, prevents your children from getting and dying. And in the COVID, we are in the same thing. So it's a very selfish act. I it's, don't know. Or at least I don't know, it's, I have a, I would slightly disagree with you. In the particular case of COVID and the vaccine for COVID, yeah, in many ways it is extremely individualistic as in it's going to prevent you from dying. However, the vaccine also makes transmission of the virus much more difficult. But that's that's the point. So what I'm, what I'm saying to you is there are models in which when you are acting on your own self-best interest, this is also on the best interest of the, of the community. Right, okay? but if you think here in the United States, many people are not taking the vaccine, although they have access, because they're not thinking that by taking the vaccine, this is going to support the bigger community. So you're right to an extent, but this is, I think you're spot on when you say that we are hardwired to think about instant gratification, but we are also, we're also missing the fact that until everyone gets vaccinated, we all continue to be at risk. And that, that the vaccine in the case of this pandemic is, it's very important for stopping the rapid transmission of the virus and to reaching a level of global herd immunity that will stop the death that has been happening. I mean, you come from Brazil, I come from Egypt. We've seen an enormous amount of unnecessary death as a result of the, the, the virus. And that is a communal issue. So when somebody contracts the virus, it's always going to be a result of reckless behavior. Either somebody was being reckless or somebody around them was being reckless. And the vaccine is your protection against that re reckless behavior, right? So I, I think it's a combination of what you're saying and what I'm saying. It is very much about individual survival, but in the case of a pandemic, it's also very much a case of collective. Look, I'm, I'm not defending that we don't think of the community. I know. But what I'm, I'm arguing is that uh, um, I don't want to count on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I get it. You're and, probably and, right. And what is the what are the incentives that I don't have to count on it? 
and I know that it can uh, um, it can be done because you know nature does it uh, um, all the time. There's a, a lot of uh, I could don't want to bother you with the details, but there are some models that shows how species acting on their own best self-interest they contribute to the homeostasis of the environment, making a better environment for all the other species without having to, to count on them. Um, and I think that the, in, on, you know, like going against all of these are, are the business models. There are so many predatory business models and what is what I want to ask you uh, is uh, maybe we are too tolerant to all this. Um, okay, let let me go back because my brain is going faster than than my mouth. So if, if we think about all these incentives, they could be better uh, uh, distributed. But I what we actually see are uh, um, very unequal incentives. So some people benefit benefit too much from tax incentives or you know like government money in ones and and but and then there are no incentives to share it back or to share to the other shareholders share with other uh, uh, stakeholders, not just with the shareholders. So you have this system with where the incentives are not well positioned and this leads to some predatory business models. And I've seen how predatory business models hurt some amazing technologies like GMOs, okay? That the world population has developed a, a, a prejudice against GMOs that is completely unfounded in scientific evidence. But it was probably connected to the, the business models of the companies that started uh, producing and commercializing uh, um, the, the seeds and, and the plants uh, uh, that started the, the market of GMOs. But at the same time, we are very tolerant with the big tech uh, predatory business models that preys on our attention, our time and, and everything. And can we get out of these vicious cycles of, of business models and, and distribute better these incentives? Or, or uh, we probably can. So maybe the question is, how long is it going to take? I don't know. I mean, it's the question that I think about every day. <laughs> I think, you know, at the so many of us, so many of us at the beginning of the pandemic thought, is this going to be an opportunity for everyone to take a step back and think about how we can function differently so that we don't see the businesses that you talk about continue to thrive, right? But now, as hopeful as I was at, at a certain point that people would take the moment to really rethink, uh, as much as I'm not so sure that we're going down that path because you see things pretty much going back to business as usual, as if we forgot about the year and a half of a pandemic and living 
through a very difficult time in our, at least in our modern history. I, I think that what will be required uh, is very intentional interventions with, you're, you're a biologist, so you're an ecosystems person. And what, for ecosystems to work well, the different components of the ecosystems need to be doing, like I relate to what you're saying, when everyone um, thinks about their own best interest, it will work for the collective. I would say that when you're thinking about an innovation-driven ecosystem, when every stakeholder is doing what they're supposed to be doing, but are united around a common purpose, then I think we might see uh, I, we might see a very different different way of doing things. I think the problem is that there's a complete misalignment across stakeholders within innovation ecosystems, and we need to find a way to align everyone around a common purpose. And if that common purpose is about innovation that is inclusive and equitable and accessible, and that means that every stakeholder in the ecosystem needs to function accordingly, then we can start building the incentives that are required to allow this to happen. I don't, I don't have the, I don't have a clear answer for you. I wish I did. Maybe what you and I should do is to think about writing, uh, writing something that provides a framework for this, where, you know, you take your biologist mind and combine it with the best of what MIT knows around how innovation ecosystems function and how we can create incentives that would make it work better for everyone. I don't think we're Let's having these it. conversations. So I think maybe your podcast is onto something for bringing these conversations forward. But look, one aspect of what we are talking about is how... Uh, um, Um, unnecessary risk is um, and and fail. So how um, a bad, a unnecessary bad that went bad is not punished and sometimes is even rewarded, right? So uh, um, what we call crony capitalism, right? And how the the the, the bets that are made out of greed are not checked, right? Because yeah. even in an ecosystem with all the resilience, if you over uh, consume your resources, you are going to go extinct. And there's no one that can came, come and save you. You know, like if you, are, if you don't have the necessary redundancy uh, on your systems and you are going to die and there's no coming back from that. And I think that um, those predatory business models could not survive or exist in an environment that doesn't, uh, um, that punishes these bad investments or this. this um, yeah, I'm 100% with you. There needs to be consequences. Uh, and we don't have enough consequences. So as much as we need to incentivize, we also need accountability. Yes. Good. Let's let's write this article. Let's and, do it. I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> so, Dina, before I let you go, uh, let me ask you three short rapid fire questions. 
So the first is what book you are reading right now. And you already told me, so please don't, <laughs> I, want, I want the truth. <laughs> Well, the truth is, you know, I'm in my uh, I'm in my mid 40s and um, I am <laughs> sadly or not. I don't know. I'm reading a book about menopause <laughs> and uh, uh, basically acquainting myself for what is to come. Um, okay. <laughs> and aside from that, I'm also reading uh, a book called Transcendent Kingdom by um, uh by the author of a, another book I loved called Homegoing, which uh, and her name is Yagyasi. So I do have one fiction and one, well, not pure fiction, but fiction right, based on real life and one uh, book about the future of my life. <laughs> Second question is, uh, do you take long or short lunch breaks? Always long. I'm Egyptian. Wow. You're probably the first person on the podcast that to, to give this answer. The third, maybe interesting um, for you, Bitcoin. Are you a believer or a non-believer? I think the short answer is I'm a believer. The longer answer is I'm a believer that has done nothing about my beliefs. <laughs> But you're going to fix that, right? I hope to, it's going to be my, so like the two things that we are going to do, we are going to write an article on, you know, the metaphors of ecosystem and, and, and ecosystem, innovation ecosystems and nature ecosystems. And hopefully I can help you getting acquainted with, Yay, I can't with wait. the Bitcoin world. You know, one of the interesting, very interesting things of, uh, um, the blockchains and I would say specifically the Bitcoin blockchain is that incentives are very well distributed and there's no work around them. So if you screw up, there's no one to save you. The algorithm is going to execute whether it hurts you or not. So you, you should really uh, um, know what what are the incentives because there's no one that can come and save you it's a beautifully uh, um, uh, it's a beautiful example of incentives distribution and a, a new technology that prevents um, individuals or individual groups to execute things on their own, to their own advantage. So the rules without rulers, it's beautiful. You're going to get in love with it. You have to send me something to read. I find this fascinating and we do have to write something. Yes, I'm going to. So like one book that I loved reading about it is the Bitcoin standard and it's it starts with money because you cannot one, one very interesting quote that I uh, uh, explanation about Bitcoin that I heard was Bitcoin is everything you don't know about money with everything you don't know about computers. So it's a bit. Hard, oh my God. That is probably very true. <laughs> I would even add that there is a lot that you don't know about physics because the beauty of it is also that it's like it's thermodynamics money. Um, but 
you need to know, and you probably already do more than I did when I started this journey uh, four years ago, know about money. And, and then when you learn about economics and how, how money works, you realize we need a better one. And in my opinion, Bitcoin is. Gina, so Brilliant. much. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Mara. We have to do it some other time. Actually, we can. We have not to stop doing this. Let's let's we'll keep uh, talking and and hopefully start working together. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye.